Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan. This unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud. Stud is here. Please welcome your Studcast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. It is episode number three. My name is Tony Basilio. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, is with me here in our studios right here in beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. 93 years, four generations, the first family of wrestling. The story till now has been untold. Now it will be told. And it has been a secret until now. We unlock the vault on the stud cast when last we picked it up tennessee stud we were in the late 1930s and today my friend we're gonna call it a bear of an episode welcome back man to another stud cast great to be here tony i say let her rip man let him growl and when last we visited we did some incredible stuff in episode two we're getting tremendous feedback on this program as they drop and stud we're going to pick this thing up in the late 1930s so go right ahead the floor is yours all right thanks sir the 1930s uh you got territories now we're beginning to build territories and they're across the country different families the wrestling business is and it's still the same way that's why vince jr and wwe is here it was a family business and it was handed down from generation to generation and if you didn't keep the same territory if you were smart and you were good and you figured things out you could go out there and create yourself a new territory build one of your own and that's basically what i did and uh they were hard to buy territories because guys were making money uh wrestling was a big sport and everybody everybody wanted to get involved in it everybody wanted to get into it on the wrestling end everybody wanted to get into it and my businesses i discouraged it and so did roy now we're back into the 30s and we've still got guys that don't get into wrestling without learning to shoot you couldn't come and say hey i want to be a wrestler and have roy say well show up next week and we'll put you in the ring that wasn't the case i mean you had to go through a rigorous training and you had to get stretched you had to get hurt you had to bleed you had to go through hell to be a wrestler and there's so many that i could name starting in the 30s and the 40s that came out of that mold especially if you wrestled anywhere in the south from ohio south to the gulf coast it's such a big part of the country and Roy owned it and he controlled it and he decided who was going to wrestle there and who wasn't. He made sure that everybody that represented the sport 
could do so with the ability. They could back up what the heck the business was called wrestling, and they could do what they, they said they were and do what they did. And so we get back to these territory days, and we're talking about the late 30s, early 40s, the formation of what becomes his hold on the southeast and in these towns. So now we're in the late 30s. Let's talk about how things are changing. I mean, we're in the Depression area. We're coming out of the Depression area. We're about to get into World War II. And my granddad, he saw things. I, I don't know how he knew that there was going to be a war, but it was almost like he knew that something's going to happen. And he decided, for whatever reason, that he needed to create and do something that had never been done before. So he decided that he wanted to find himself a bear and train a bear to wrestle. When somebody says that, it's pretty ridiculous. You know, I mean, how are you going to train a bear to wrestle? There were no wrestling bears. He trained the very first wrestling bear. And I think if you look on the Internet, they're going to tell you that a guy did it in the 1950s. I wrestled that bear that they're talking about on the video. Roy's bear was named Ginger. He bought her as a cub, and he trained her. As she grew up, she was almost like a family member. Uh, He didn't take out her canine teeth. He didn't pull her claws. And when they, bears that followed her never had their teeth. They never had their claws. Because the trainer, the person that, that owned the bear and trained the bear, couldn't handle the bear. And the bear would have eat him up or smacked him and, and clawed him to death. So they, they limited the bear's ability to hurt you. And then they could train him. Roy trained his bear with all her teeth and all her claws. And uh, so he took a, a small 200-pound cub that turned into an 800-pound black bear. She was a monster. There are some pictures on the Internet. People want to dig and find them. Maybe we'll be able to place some into my website. You go there and you're going to see a picture of him diving off the top rope on the back of an 800-pound black bear. She don't even have a muzzle on. She has nothing on. Her claws are four inches long and her mouth is open. It's pretty remarkable. There's another shot of him scissoring her from behind (laughs) and got her throat and choking her and uh so i asked him when i was a kid i said how do you train a bear how do you keep a bear from killing you right i mean you know as she grew bigger and bigger i said how did you do it and he said i slapped her and i said wait a minute you know i said bears will slap you i've heard they slap your head off and he goes yeah but he said i slapped her when she was little and i had her boohooed and scared of me so that I could control her. So he trains a bear because he says to me, he says, I had a feeling that things were going to change. He said, so when World War II came, a lot of wrestlers had to go to war. So as they left the country, then he didn't have any wrestling. And all the men are gone. They're all fighting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, women and the women are trying to support the men and working all day and they're not going to come to wrestling it's just them by themselves so he trains the bear and he builds a trailer for his bear i said well where did you take her he said i took her everywhere and i said well what do you mean by everywhere he said i took her 
to darn near every state in America. I took her into Mexico. I took her into Canada. He said, it did not make any difference. You know, times were tough and people didn't have any money. He said, I never had a match in which it didn't sell out. He said, I would go to promoters and say, I've got a wrestling bear and I will make her available to you. And, they and would, he would wrestle the bear. He would wrestle the bear. And that was the, the, and that's that's an important distinction to get in there because not just anybody. Oh, no, no, no. He would wrestle the bear. Now, it started out he would wrestle the bear. I saw pictures of where he had a collar on her, and he had hooks into the collar, and the ropes were extended out into the floor, and a guy on each side of the ring would hold the ropes to keep her from leaving the ring. The problem was is she's a live bear, and she's got no muzzle, and she's got no mittens on, and if she gets in the crowd, who knows what the hell's going to happen. So they controlled her, and he did the actual wrestling. Now, as time went on, he put a muzzle on her, and then he put mittens on her, and when he did that, he could have a few other guys wrestle her. But she was a mean bear. The older she got, obviously the meaner she got and one guy got his finger inside the muzzle one night and she bit his finger off so word got around pretty quick you know roy's bears you gotta be careful with him he takes the bear on let's call it a north american tour for three years he's on the road he don't come home he just goes and travels with the bear when he brings the bear back after this long North American tour, he starts to use her. It's where we're getting close to the end of World War II. He starts to use her in his own territory, which war's over. I mean, you know, it was a vibrant, exciting time to be alive, no doubt, and about the time I was going to be born. And everybody's coming home, and everybody's happy. They're starting to get jobs, and the country's really moving forward. So he starts selling out. He takes his bear in his own territory. He never leaves with her again. He realizes that she's such a moneymaker, he's going to leave her here. So he takes his bear during the day. What do you do with a bear, right? I mean, you own a bear, but what do you do with the bear, right? And you don't put her in a cage and leave her there. He takes a stake and a sledgehammer and he drives that stake into the ground and he chains her to the stake and he leaves her on a chain that's about 15 20 feet long so that she can move around and walk and do her thing and he put her in the backyard of their house <laughs> okay now this wouldn't work in today's what time. a character i'm telling you he's a oh he's he chains her and puts her in the backyard of his house on nights when he doesn't take her and he goes to wrestle, he puts her on the chain and my grandma and my dad and his sister, they're all scared to death. And there were times that she got off her chain and would try to get in the house. They were just terrorized. growing up with a bear in your backyard? I mean, I, what is the matter with this guy? <laughs> I told you, this he, he was a, he was a character. There was only one Roy. So my dad, when he was 12 years old, part of the, the wrestling thing with the bear is he, he would do the match, and then at the end of the match, he would bring a Coke, a bottle of Coca-Cola. He would hand her the Coke. She would sit up on her butt, and she would drink the Coke. Well, the crowd really loved it. It was the end of the match. Here we go. Here's your present. To her, it was her reward for doing the deal and she drank the coke 
and then uh, he would take her to the to the dressing room and do the thing there. When Dad was 12 years old, he had her staked out one time in the backyard, and he was there. Thank God he was there. I wouldn't be here today telling you this story. But Dad had some friends that everybody wants to see a bear. You got a bear in your backyard? Let's go look at her, right? You know, so everybody came. It was probably 10 or 12 guys. He, Dad tells me this story. And this would have been in Dyersburg? This is in Dyersburg. Okay. Dyersburg, Tennessee. This is back in probably, Dad was born in 27. Uh, he was 12 years old. 39. Okay. Okay. So 39, 40, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he comes and, uh, and he starts... He don't get too close. He knows that she's on a chain, right? So he doesn't have a Coke. And he wants to do something to show that he, you know, for his friends. Hey, I'm going to show y'all what she does, right? So he goes and gets himself a Coke bottle, but it doesn't have a Coke in it. And he goes and puts water in it. And he takes it over to where she is, Ginger is. And he reaches out. To get close, so she's got to be close enough to pick up the water, but he don't want to get close enough that she can get to him. And he doesn't pay attention, but there's a little slack in the chain. And uh, when he hands her, he puts the water, she reaches and gets the water. She sits up, and as soon as the liquid hits her mouth and she realizes it's not Coke, it, it pissed her off, right? And uh, I guess it's not good to piss off a bear. So, uh, he, she drops the bottle, and she lunges for him, and he's a little too close. Mm. And she has enough reach with her claws. Now, she's got her claws, so she hooks the back of his leg and drops him on his butt, and then she drags him underneath him, underneath her. And uh, he starts screaming right away. Now, Roy's there, but he's on the far side of the house. And uh, so now Dad told me this story. You know, I said, what was that like? What did she do to you? And he said uh, that he almost got away. He scrambled, and she hadn't dug her claws into him yet. And he scrambled backwards, like with his feet trying to get away. And she said she reached and grabbed him, and that's the first time she stuck her claws in him. And she grabbed him in the thigh and drug him back in underneath her. And then she (sighs) went for his stomach. She tried to bite him in the stomach, and he got his fingers in her mouth. Uh, enough so that she just couldn't get it. Yeah, she was trying to move her head like, you know, I want to really get you good. And uh, and he and she let loose with her claws, and he slid away again. He started backing out again, and and she got him again. This time she pulled him, got him in the other leg, and pulled him back underneath her, and she bit him in the thigh. And they, and he told me he said. He, it was a pretty pretty horrible deal for a 12-year-old to see, but he said she bit him in the thigh, and it, it tore the skin, and she pulled out his thigh muscle out of his leg. He could see his own thigh muscle and bit it in two. Pow! It popped like that. And then, uh, you know, he said he, he, he basically passed out, I guess, at that point. And uh, Roy was there. Roy came running around, screamed at her. She ran. She was scared of Roy. She backed off, and, and they took him to the hospital. And the rest of his life, all of his wrestling career, if you ever got a good chance to see his legs, he had scars all over his thighs and down into his calf area where the bear had tore him up. And uh, So I wouldn't be here today if, if Roy hadn't been there, and neither would Rob, and things would have been certainly different. We wouldn't be doing this. 
this broadcast for sure. But uh, so he took the bear. Now, now he's the type of guy that he the bear is a toy to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, back to your grandfather, Roy Welch, you were talking Roy. about. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. Roy's got a bear. He's got an eight hundred pound toy. Mm-hmm. He's got an eight hundred pound terrorizing toy. Okay, he's got a good toy. Mm-hmm. And Roy liked to terrorize you. He'd throw snakes on you. He'd do anything to get a laugh. Anything to 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 be a demon. He was a bit of a demon. Was he that way toward his grandkids? Oh, I'll give you Darren's stories here in a minute, okay? Well, let's get past this one. He took a wrestler named Baby Blimp that we mentioned a minute ago. He's about 300 pounds. Here was the type of deal he would do, and he enjoyed it. He played like this. Uh, he went into the town early in the night, and Baby Blimp, this is in the Birmingham building in Botwell Auditorium. It's still there today. Uh, it's about a five-story dressing room, and and Bunk had gone up. They called him Bunk, Baby Blimp. He had gone up on the fifth floor, and Roy got in there by himself, and he and he hears somebody up on the upper level, and he always liked to mess with Bunk for whatever reason, and Bunk was a big, fat guy that had been trained from Dyersburg, the wrestling factory that Dyersburg was. Some of the greatest wrestlers in the world came out of Dyersburg, Tennessee, and takes the bear up there. She's got no muzzle on, and their, and their mittens are off. There's nobody else in the building, and he gets on the fifth floor, and there's a there's a hallway is about uh, 50 feet, 75 feet long, and at the far end is a little uh, maintenance room where they keep the mops and stuff like that. It has a glass door in it, and beyond that is a window. It's just a tiny little room, and the window will open up, but you're 50 feet up here, and there's concrete down there, right? So he comes to the hallway. Bunk is halfway down the hallway, and Bunk turns around and looks, and he sees it's Roy and the bear, and nobody else in the building, and Roy just reaches down and unhooks her. Cotton takes the sun, snaps her, and she starts down that hall for him, and Bunk runs. He gets the beacher to the room, and he gets inside the little room that's got the glass door in it, and he's screaming. He's screaming like, oh, God, please, it can't be anybody. He opens the window, you know, like, but he can see her through the window, and she can see him through the glass. So she she breaks the glass, runs her claw through the glass, and starts reaching in there like one of those movies. She can't quite reach him. He's just beyond reach. Now he's really, he gets in the window. He's actually going to jump. I'm going to kill myself. This bear feet. is chasing this wrestler. This bear is He's gonna, 50 feet up in the air. And this bear is going to kill him. This bear is going to eat him if she gets to him. And Roy's just Roy's just terrorizing him. Obviously, he's going to get her at the last second. And he waits to the absolute last second when the bear's already broke the glass. She's reaching for him and bunks in the window about to jump and kill himself. He gra- snaps her back on and pulls her back. So another time, same guy, another town. They go into it, and my dad's there that night. He tells me this story. He says they're in a bathroom, and it's got a partition by where the commode is, and it goes up toward the ceiling, but there's only about two and a half feet of space in there. Now, Bunk is a big, fat guy. He weighs 300 pounds, you know, So, and there's about two feet of space. There's nowhere else to hide in that bathroom. The light's on in the bathroom. It's at night. Roy comes down the hallway. He's got the bear. He opens the door, and he sees it's Bunk in there. Nobody in there but Bunk. And he just wheels the bear around and lets her into the bathroom with him, unsnaps her, and turns off the light. 
And now he's in there live with this bear, right? And he starts screaming. And Dad says, he's just, I mean, everybody's coming running like, oh, God, what's going on? Roy says, it's okay. Bear's in there. And, you know, it's like, so all of a sudden gets quiet. And Dad's like, oh, my God, man, she's got him. You know, his dad says, hey, uh, you, what are you going to do, Roy? You going to listen to let her eat him? You know, and he's like, yeah, well, we'll check. So he opens the door and he turns on the light. And they walk in there and Bunk's not there. He's gone. Dad says, he's gone. He's like, what in the hell, the hell did he go? There's no window. How, where are they? And then he heard a, <laughs> here's this little wheezing noise. And he looks and that 300 pound guy has wedged himself between the ceiling and that top of that <laughs> partition. His belly's hanging halfway down to the floor. But it took three guys. He said it took three guys to get him out of there, to, to, to wedge him out of there. So that was Roy. That was a that was the type of guy he was. He played with everybody. When we were kids, me and my brother Rob and Jimmy Golan, we used to go visit him. And he would come in. He only was there like two days a week. He was always on the road. And he would come in. He'd be there late at night. We'd be sleeping in one bed. There'd be two doors to the bedroom, let's say. It was big bedrooms back in his house. And uh, and he would come in at 7 o'clock in the morning. We are still asleep. And he would lock the doors. And then he would attack us. I call it an attack. He would literally attack us. He'd dive on you from across the room. He'd just start biting you in the back. He'd slap you in the chest. And he would pull you when you tried to scream and get off the bed. He'd carry you to the last second and pull you back underneath. He'd take your face and stuff it under his armpit. And uh, he would get on you with his belly and get his belly on your face and he would growl like a bear the whole time he just kept growling and growling and the mamas now they're outside they hear the screaming we're in there like bunk screaming right we're we're terrified he's just killing us this would go on 20 stretching what grandpa stretching you grandpa is is making us tough that's what it is. Grandpa, in his mind, I think, says, I'll make these boys tough. He'd power, I mean, he would slap you in the back and leave a handprint for two days. I mean, he was seriously pulverizing us. And the mamas and the grandma would scream outside, Oh, God, let him out of there. Come on, quit, 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 let him out. Go away, he'd scream. Go away. Leave me alone. You know, and he would just, that was kind of life we grew up around him. When you were around him, you never knew what to expect. He had a bunch of Shetland ponies. You'd want to go out there and ride the Shetland ponies. Say, you want to ride the ponies? we go, yeah, yeah, we'll ride the ponies. And he'd say, we'd go out there and we knew which ones were tame. And, it, and we'd say, we won't ride that one, I won't ride that. And he said, no, 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 let's get you a good one to ride. He'd go get the nasty little stud pony out of the barn. And and, and they knew he was going to buck you off and bite you in the back and kick you in the head if he, wanted, if he could. And he'd say, okay, here's your pony. He'd ride, get on him. And now it'd be my turn. I'd get bucked off. Rob would get, get on him, Rob. Jimmy, get on him. Get on him again, Ron. Yeah, I mean, he just, and he got his laughs. He'd watch us get bucked off and eat up and beat up. And we'd end up with crap, uh, cow crap all over us from the lot. It was like whatever he could do to make to make it difficult for us. And to, I guess to make us tough. And tough you became. And so he's got to put a territory together now. Now we're. You, you took us up to the period where he has the bear. 
World War II ends. What did he share with you about the formation of the territory and how that came about? Well, like I was telling you before, he'd go in the dressing rooms, and that was the beginning of building the territory. But now he had more family members. We're talking about now my dad is about to start to wrestle. Uh, Lester is beginning to wrestle. The Fields boys are beginning to wrestle. How would your dad become a fuller, by the way? When dad started wrestling, there were four Welches wrestling. Lester had started. And there were four wrestlers wrestling at, at that time. There was Roy and Herb and Jack, who had kind of quit. Didn't turn out to be a really good wrestler, and he didn't like it. He wasn't suited for it, whatever, and he quit. And then there was Lester. Lester was young, but he had just started. So Dad wanted to make a name for himself. Dad had a bit of an ego. He didn't want to ride on the coattails of these Welches that were coming along. So... I asked him, I said, how did you become Buddy Fuller? Same question you asked me, because I was never around. I was a kid when that's happened. He changed his name, his wrestling name, from Welch to Fuller in probably, I'd say, 1949 or 50. He had just started wrestling. He started out as Welch, and then he decided he wanted to change his name. And he wrestled in some town in Louisiana or wherever Roy had some event going, and he sent him down there to wrestle, too. And he got there. They said, we got a guy here that didn't show up tonight, you know, and nobody really knows what he looks like. Dad said, well, what's his name? You know, and they said, his name is Buddy Fuller. Well, you know, he said, I've never been here. And the guy's never been here. He said, they ain't going to know who Buddy Fuller is, are they? No. And he says, I like that name. He said, I'm going to be Buddy Fuller. So he went out and wrestled and substituted for a guy that didn't show up and said, I am Buddy Fuller. And and by golly, he became Buddy Fuller. So he created his own name. And to be quite honest with you, he was damn good himself, too. He was just about as tough as Roy. He had been raised ruggedly like Roy had been raised. And he knew how to shoot. He was another shooter. And guys that wrestled really respected my dad. They they were, they were scared of him like the generation before was scared of Roy. He had that same respect. They, you didn't mess with him. You know, if you were in the ring with him, you never took liberties. You never, you never made a move to, to, to do something to make him look foolish because he was, he was capable of hurting you. And he taught me some of that at an early age. We're talking about it. When I was in, in the seventh or eighth grade, because your daddy's a wrestler, you don't have it easy. You know, kids see your daddy on TV, and they and they say, oh, your daddy's that wrestler, ain't he? You must be tough, too, right? You're automatically supposed to be tough. And I used to get a lot of that when I was in the second and third grade. And I remember going to Dad and telling him in the third grade, I said, Dad, I'm, 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 I'm encountering a bunch of stuff at school that ain't good, you know. Well, what is it, he says, you know. And I said, well, you know, the guys think I'm supposed to be tough because you're tough, and, and I don't know what to do. And he says, oh, so he says, you need to know a couple wrestling moves. Yeah, that'd be good. You know, I'm eight, nine years old. You know, I said, yeah, that'd be good. Show me a couple of things. And he says, okay, well, he says, they headlock you, right? When you get started, he says, the first thing they do is get a headlock. And I said, yeah, that's what they do, you know. I mean, he'd, he'd been around. He he knew how people, how guys that don't know how to wrestle, the first thing they're going to get is get a hold of your head. I got you, right? He said, give me your head. 
I said, what do you mean give me your head? I said, he said, when you go in, don't don't grab their hands or their arms. Just stick your head out there. Let them have it. He said, when they get the hold of that headlock, he said, just reach between their legs and pick them straight up and go straight back. Drop them right on their heads. And I was like, sounds good, right? First time I did that, you can imagine what happened. I mean, the guy knocked the kid out and, you know, and they come out and play playground. And, what did you do? Well, I... Uh, he grabbed my head. We were wrestling, and I dropped him. And you know, so so then <laughs> the next episode later on, that got to be good. I liked it. I said, "Whoa, that works, Dad." So I said, "Show me another one." So he goes, "Okay." He goes, "You stick your head out." He goes, "Front face lock you. You put your head there, and the guy, the kid, then gets you in with a front face lock, and your head down there around his waist." And I said, "Okay, what do you do?" He said, oh, it's real simple. He said, reach up there, put your hand over the back of his neck, get his head, run that hand between his legs, and DDT him. Basically, that's it. Boom, drop him right on his head again. I was like, oh, dog, man, that's a good one. I can tell already, right? I'm getting with the program. This is good. This will work, you know. So I got an opportunity to do that a few times. I was in trouble quite a bit. Finally showed me the last one he showed me. It was a great one. It was a scissor because kids back in those days, they get their legs wrapped around your body. They want to squeeze you. And so he says, just let them have it. Give it to them. Let them have their hold. Let them get the scissor. He said, turn around to where your back is up to their stomachs. And he said, just put your feet over top of their feet, one over top of both their feet and the other one on top of that one, and push down. And, uh. What it does, if you ever try that, is, I mean, it does. It, that's figure four. That's almost like a reverse figure it, four, it's isn't a, it? It's a, it's a very simple, it's a, kid's, it's a kid's toy, basically. It's a simple little deal, but it's so darn painful. I would do that to them. I'd give them that scissor. I'd slide around there, and I'd just, and then I would throw that leg. Bang. I knew it was going to be over, and they would scream. So then I asked him, I said, because wrestling is a series of moves. When you learn to shoot, you're learning to wrestle. You know, there's a counter for every. So I got to the point where where that didn't, where I said, you know, teach me something more. And he says, okay, let's take it to another level. He goes, okay, I'm going to do it to you. He would scissor me. You top the scissor. And then he would take me and flip me on the stomach, on my stomach. And front face lock me and he would front face when my dad front face locked somebody it was always your lips were bleeding he would say don't just put the hand up there against your face real softly he says rip them lips off right just get that forearm and just slide it across the face and he said and rare now you got him you're on top of him. His legs are locked in. He can't let you loose. And he said, he's going to want to, but you got him. He said, just try to try to bring that head and touch it to his heels. In other words, just bow him up. So it was like simple stuff, third grade stuff, basically. And it was really third grade stuff, but it all worked. And they got me in a lot of trouble. Apple didn't fall far from the tree for your father to your, <laughs> to your grandfather, huh? No. No, not far at all. Oh, I, we'll get into that at some point and talk about how Rob and I were raised. And it's beyond people won't believe how we were raised. we got to do some on the other side. We are going to go to the Facebook page and take some questions. And I do want to remind you, 
that RonFullerTennesseeStud.com is up, operational. If you want to reach the stud there, see some of the pictures he's talking about with the bear and perhaps some other elements will be added to the page as we go. And also on Facebook, if you want to ask questions of Ron, it's Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. When we continue on the other side, we'll get to that. As we continue, I remind you, you are listening to the Studcast, Episode 3. The Studcast continues in one minute after these important Studcast offers. Hey, this is David Summers. Thank you for joining us for this historical and unique stud cast. We invite you to visit RonFullerTNStud.com. That's RonFullerTNStud.com. And take a ride through the stud store. Souvenirs like masks and t-shirts will soon be available, as well as vintage videos of the stud in action. Friend us on Facebook at RonFullerWelch and ask any question you may have about the sport we all love. If your question is selected as the best of the stud cast, you'll receive a personal autographed 8x10 photo of the stud. Hang that baby up in the living room. Follow us on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch and tell us what you think about our stud cast. Message us on Instagram at Ron Fuller Welch and show your support. We value your opinion, so communicate with us on this awesome journey through wrestling history with the first family of wrestling. We're honored and humbled by the response we're receiving and we hope you'll continue to spread the word. And remember, a new stud cast is born every Monday, so Saturday Battle up and ride with the stud. You are back seated ringside on this edition of the Ron Fuller Studcast. We're back with you, and why don't you go ahead and share, if you can, a Facebook question. Uh, this is a great segment. This first question here is from a, a gentleman named Randy Weber. He's from Clinton, Tennessee, which is not too far from where we are right now, as a matter of fact. And uh, it says, of all the notable famous people, wrestler and world-known star, you've met over the years is there anyone that you were in awe of or that he has a special place in your heart now, i thought this was a great question and i've met a lot of famous people we'll start with the famous people i've met a lot of famous people in my life uh, i was on a flight in california in the 70s and i had the distinct honor of sitting next to ronald reagan Oddly enough, that's how I got my name. My dad was a big movie fan, and every time my mom was pregnant and giving birth, he wasn't the type that could sit around and wait on it to happen. He would go to a movie. He would say, I'm going to go to a movie, and maybe it'll be here by the time I come back. And the first movie he went to, and when I was born, and he came back, he had watched the Ronald Reagan movie. So he named me Ronald. And when my brother was born, he went to a movie, and it was a Robert Mitchum movie. And so that's how my brother got the name of Robert. And I was a fan of Reagan. I liked him in the movies. At that point, he wasn't president, but he was about to be president very shortly afterward. We talked about some of these same stories that we're talking about. He was infatuated with the bear. He was like, are you kidding me? That can't be. He's probably one of the most famous individuals that I encountered. And he's asking for one of the wrestlers. I've given this a lot of thought. I'm going to have the oddest choice of probably anybody that could imagine. There was a wrestler that was really good when Roy was in his heyday in the 30s and 40s. And one of those shooters that came to wrestle for Roy, his name was Charlie Carr. He was really a great wrestler. He taught my dad to wrestle. 
And when I got old enough and in high school, and the junior in high school, Dad put a ring in the backyard, and we got seriously wrestling around my junior year of high school. He would do it in our backyard there. We had the ring. We would work out. He hired Charlie. Charlie was old then. He was in his 60s. He had trained my dad. He had wrestled with my grandfather, and he was still good enough to beat me. He was such a good wrestler and such a good shooter that when my dad started training with him, Lester was young, Lester trained with him, all three Fields brothers, Bobby, Lee, and Don, they all wrestled with him, and he was a drinker. He liked to drink. He had a drinking problem because he had had a wreck with his wife uh, when he was just gotten married, and she died in a car wreck, and he never got over losing his wife. So he would drink, and they would go pick him up to go work out, and they would take him down to the ring. They had a ring in a building. In the middle of the day, it would be hot in the building. There was no air conditioning. He would be so drunk that they would have to carry him out of the hotel where he stayed and roll him into the ring, and then they would take turns jumping on him, and he's drunk. And he would wallering around, and he'd just wrist lock one of them, or he'd hook one of them with something, and they'd go, Charlie, Charlie, let him go. He'd let him go, and he'd just roll over again drunk, and the next one would jump on him. They'd take turns jumping on him until he sweated enough that he sobered up. It'd take him about an hour and a half, Dad said. He'd be sober where he could stand up finally. Never heard of coffee, huh? Never heard of coffee, no. This was a (laughs) – this was a – Different cure than coffee. They they sobered him up in a, in a more different atmosphere. So Charlie, when I was 15, 16 years old, started teaching me and Robert to wrestle. And Charlie's style was different than any – most wrestlers wrestle from their hands and knees. If they got in trouble, they went to their hands and knees. Charlie would go on his side. He would wrestle from his side. And I'd never seen anybody before since that did it. And he was so good at it that – if you stuck an arm in front of him, if you were behind him and you reached over him, it was a wrist lock. If you got him in a different direction, he would wrist lock. He was a wrist lock king. And when he wrist locked you, he didn't wrist lock you like most guys do, where they're just going to twist your arm and put it up your back. He would wrist lock you, and he would reach and get his leg over one of your legs. All he needed was one leg. So that he gets you face down, and you couldn't turn over on your back. And then he would take your arm, and instead of putting it up your back, like most kids do when you wrestle high school, he would twist your wrist and point your shoulder north, straight up up above you. He would tear your shoulder out and break your wrist at the same time, <laughs> if he wanted to. Now, he never obviously he never did that, but... Now, I learned really quick when you were shooting with Charlie, you had to be careful where you put your arms because it was over if he got one of those. So Ron and Clinton with a great question. We had Ronald Reagan and then another wrestler whose name was Charlie. Charlie Carr. Charlie Carr. So there you go. It's question number two, Stud. This one here is from Tracy Mitchell. This is from Manchester, Kentucky. How was your relationship with Bob Armstrong back in the day? How is it now? Great question. Bob Armstrong, in my opinion, is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. He's in the Hall of Fame. He came to wrestle for me in Knoxville in 1976, and he never left. He became a friend not only of me but my brother. He started in the 60s. 
Rob and I started in 1970, and I left and went to Florida to wrestle. Rob became partners with Bob Armstrong, and they were Georgia Tag Team Champions for many years. They were a great team together. Bob came to wrestle for me with Southeastern Championship Wrestling in Knoxville. Just did wonderful. He was a great, great athlete and and a super guy. We did business when I went to... I moved and started my second company, Southeastern Wrestling, located out of Pensacola. Uh, I took my brother and my cousin, and I have another cousin named Roy Lee Welch, Lester Welch's son. He was a wrestler, and Bob Armstrong. The four of them I took with me and sold them parts of that company because they were family. Three was family, and Bob Armstrong was not my family, but he was as much family as they were. I really, really admire Bob Armstrong. Bob and I had some real problems in the 80s. Bob did some stuff to me. In one particular match, I won the world championship. I had Ric Flair in the fuller leg lock in the middle of the ring. That I'm world champion. No one ever got out of that hold. And it's inescapable, and you can break a leg anytime you want to. And I had him in the middle of the ring, and Bob was the special referee, and Bob turned on me. I think Flair paid Bob because I, Flair was thinking that I was going to, I could beat him. We had had a Broadway, we'd had an hour draw before, and Flair says, I think this guy's going to beat me. And I think he talked to Bob, and, and uh, that started. One of the biggest feuds that I was ever in. Bob became good guy. He went to being a heel and was tremendous. Bob went nuts. He liked it so much that he slapped his uh, Brad. He slapped his own son on TV because and that was a great match. I wish they had this on tape, but Brad wrestled Ricky Gibson. And Let me ask you something. Did you have a hand in that when he slapped his son on TV? Did oh, you guys Bob. talk about that beforehand, no. or Bob was, is that Bob. an extemporaneous thing that he did to kind of push it? Bob wanted to just he wanted to just incite people. He won. He wanted to do what I did when I went there and started that company. I went in there as a badass, same as I did when I came to Knoxville. I went in there and cocky, and I wanted to make them hate me, and Bob wanted to make them hate him. And it was a match in which Gibson and, and Brad were wrestling, and Ricky Gibson uh, hurt his knee in the middle of the match and couldn't go on. And Bob jumped up in the ring and told Brad, he said, beat him. And Brad wouldn't beat him, and Bob started stomping Ricky, stomp, stomping him, and kept going back to Brad, beat him. And Brad said, no, I'm not going to beat him, Dad. I won't do that. And he slapped Brad. He ended up slapping Charlie Platt. He ended up slapping quite a few people during that time frame. And then things turned around years later. Bob came back. He wrestled partners with me. And then I did the same thing to Bob he had done to me. And I started the stud stable. That's how the stud stable came in. That happens to be one of the questions today. Yeah, there was your match. I'm looking at it right now. One of the best matches that probably anybody ever saw in Mobile, Alabama. It was historical in a way because it changed everything in that southeastern part of the country, it ignited business. Business was good. We were drawing big crowds. But after that match, 
it just really exploded. It, same thing happened when Dusty Rhodes turned in Florida, and I was there in 1974. It was an explosion. It was night after night after night after night of sellouts in every arena. You could not get them in. There would be more people sometimes outside than there was inside that couldn't get in. Sometimes events happen in the sport like that that just really sets sets things on fire. It's high art when it's done right, isn't it? It's It's, just high art. It's, it's, It's unreal. Guys used to tell me, and they still say, you know, I used to get so inspired by the crowd that I would get goosebumps. Mm. And I had guys, the story was, if Ron got goosebumps, you're going to get the hell beat out of you, right? It's going to get nasty. There are moments in wrestling when you, I call them pops, when, when you get a pop from the crowd. And we used to try to do it so much back in those days. I could hear them in the dressing room. I loved it. I would be in the dressing room, and you'd hear, they're all into it, but then you hear this, wow, the building kind of shakes a little bit. And sometimes 30 seconds later, it's a wow, it's another one. It's like, and I would just sit in there, and I would just be, I'd have goosebumps on my legs, like, oh, damn, man. Well, this is good, I it was what you went out there for. You mm. wanted to give it all. You wanted to have those people just exploding. I would imagine that in those moments when you're in the ring and that happens, I would imagine you lose yourself. You almost forget what you're doing in there. It elevates the moment. Like oh. You almost get lost in it because there's so much power in that. There's several thousand people looking at you. All of a sudden, we're all pulled into this, and the performers themselves get pulled into it as well. Oh, yeah. For me, it was the ultimate experience in the ring. When you got that crowd to that level, it was just awesome, the feeling of it. And I have been in buildings in which you were face-to-face with the referee, as an example, and screaming to say something to him, and he can't hear you. I mean, it's that loud. You can't even think about getting higher level than, than what that audience is. So, Tracy in Manchester, thank you so much for the question. And we've got time for one more here, Tennessee Stud. Okay, let me see here. Uh, and by the way, if you want to pop the Tennessee Stud, I guess in another way, you can hit him up on Facebook. Ron Fuller Welch, go ahead and become a friend today. And then also, make sure you check out the website, ronfullertennesseestud.com. That's ronfullertennesseestud.com. Go ahead, stud. Okay, this is Steve Cleary from Sydney, Australia. And he says, saw you wrestle in 1973 here in Sydney. Do you miss Australia, and will you ever come back to visit? I went to Australia twice in 1971 for two weeks and 1973 for three months and wrestled against some of the most awesome talent because it was people worldwide. You had New Zealanders, you had India, you had uh, Greeks, you had Italians, you had American Indians. Danny Little Bear was there, Austin Idol. It was before he was Austin Idol. His name was Dennis McCord at that time. It was just a litany of different stars, some from America, some from other countries. I really loved that country. If I had to live any place, and I've traveled, I've been Japan, I've been Europe, I've been, I've been on every continent except South America. 
I have never seen a place as beautiful as Australia. And those Australian people seem like they would be great wrestling fans from that era because they're beautiful, kind of heart and soul people. Every Australian person I've ever met, I just love those people. They are wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, they were great fans. We wrestled in Perth, Australia with 35,000 people in the old Olympic Stadium. They had the Olympics there in 54 or whatever it was. And those cities, that Perth, Australia, to me was a Miami. It was just like Miami except that we didn't have that, that many people. So the crowds were huge. I would love to go back there. In answer to his question, I would love to go back to Australia just to visit. I sure wouldn't go back to wrestle. I'm a little old for that. I'd like to go back and see. In fact, there was a guy there named Michael Cleary that did the commentary for Jim Barnett. Jim Barnett owned Australia when I went there and wrestled. And Michael Cleary was the most famous rugby player in the history of Australia. And he was the commentator. He was one of the most handsome guys I ever saw. He would have been a movie star in America. If you're there and you're listening and you're getting this broadcast, be sure if you ever run again to Michael Cleary, you tell him, Steve, you tell him I said hello. Because I... Me and him got to be very close. He's the only person in the history of rugby in Australia to run a touchdown, because you can't block for him in rugby, to run to score a touchdown from a kickoff. So he ran all the way back without any blocking. Man, he was a rugged, good-looking guy. I was surprised when I saw this one from Australia, that people from that far away are are listening to our program and it's really really an honor it's a beautiful country and i'm really pleased to see that people remember me i'm amazed humbled that they remember me from 40 years ago close to 40 years what's been great to sit with you here in episode three is we're about out of time we pick it up in episode four we're going to be in the late 40s you still have to unpack a lot of the stuff about the formation of the territory which you did and then we'll start getting into some of the characters, including your father, who we now know as Buddy Fuller, and how he got his name. And we can talk about the relationship that you guys had, as you were saying, some stories that you want to get out there about your father and share some tales about him. We'll do some of that in Episode 3. Stud, anything else you want to add here on the way out? It's been great today. No, nothing that I can think of. I've really enjoyed it, Tony. I'm- it's a great experience just being able to come and have my say and just uh, tell the stories because uh, I've got so many of them. We really haven't gotten to anything that people are going to be able to identify with yet. I wanted to do it this way. I wanted to develop it from the beginning and tell the story all the way toward the end. And we're going to get to everything, believe me. It's been my pleasure, and can't wait for the next one. I would encourage you to continue to go as deep as you possibly can, to be as open as you possibly can, and it's been incredible so far. So don't sell anything short as to what's happened in our first three hours together. From where I sit over here, the content that you're putting into this, and people can feel it, that you're pouring your heart into this. And this is the first time that this... First family of wrestling story has ever been told, and you're telling it in a great way. And I think that the listeners of this podcast, as they reach you and interact with you, are going to jog your memory that much more on some of the names, the places, the faces, some of the things they want to talk about, the venues, as that gentleman from Australia just did. 
and some of these other stories. So, Ron, thank you for letting me be a small part of this journey. You're welcome. My pleasure. And that's going to conclude Episode 3 here on the Studcast. I do want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, if you want more information on Ron Fuller, how to reach Ron today, you can go to ronfullertennesseestud.com. Again, that's ronfullertennesseestud.com. On Facebook, you can find him at Ron Fuller Welch. And by the way, Stud, who was the winner from the three questions this week? Did you decide who the winner was? Because I know you'd like to do something special for the person that asked you the best question. Yes, I'm going to send him an autographed picture. I really appreciate everybody getting involved with this. I really like the question today. I think the one that... uh, was asked by, I find the gentleman's name here, that asked me about the famous personality in my oh, That life. would have been Ron. Ron over in Clinton. Yep. yep. All right. Clinton, well, Tennessee. Ron, Ron Clinton. and Clinton. Congratulations, and we'll be getting that picture out to you. Keep sending in these questions, and like you say, I'm sure they're going to go backward in time and forward in time, and uh, I look forward to it. You blanched over at me like you were surprised that I was actually writing this down and staying engaged with you. <laughs> I like that look you just gave me, Stud. <laughs> You're way ahead of me, man. No, I'm trying to. I'm, no, I'm just trying to hold on for dear life here and not get in the way. But as it is, again, thank you to the Tennessee Stud. Thank you to all of you who are spreading the word for us as this podcast is spreading like wildfire. Tell a friend about the Studcast. And we'll see you in episode four. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>